You are listening to an episode of March Mad Men that is years in the making. Of all the movies I knew we would cover someday, that we surely must, tonight's is at the top of the list. Toby Hooper's 1974 classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I knew one day this film would end up on our autopsy table. It had to. And folks, I am happy to say that day is today. We are beginning our painstakingly thorough examination of the film, scene by scene, and I am just about as excited for this as any loving autopsy I can remember. I am, of course, your faithful host and guide down some of the darkest roads of cinema, John Evans, and I am joined, as always, by my fellow March madmen, Vikram Wheat and Rich Eckersley. Vic has penned several produced horror movies, and while Rich's credits to date come from outside the genre we love, he is an Emmy-nominated producer with lots more in the pipeline. Gentlemen, we've been building up to this all season long. It's finally here, Texas Chainsaw. I'm revving my saw, so to speak. Where are your heads at right now, guys? Vic, let's start with you, man. It was great to visit you and your new dog the other night. How'd that barbacoa meat turn out, and how exactly did you come by that meat, anyway? There you go, John. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about, my friend. Um, <laughs> so, for for those of you who don't know, which I frankly hope is all of you, because it would be a little weird if you were aware of what was going on in my yard the other night. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I have delved into the the experience, the, the history, the, the black-hearted history of barbecue, which involves cooking meat buried in a pit. Uh, and so John came over on, on Saturday night. We built a fire. We let it burn down to the hot coals. I, I cut a chicken in half. Uh, it, it, it unnerved John to such a degree that he had to leave the room. It's which true. Was totally fine and understandable. And, <laughs> and then we and then we put it in the pit. We buried it. Rich came over the next morning. We unboxed it like one of those weird videos your kids watch on YouTube. And there was some uh, some meat inside. It was good. It was very good. It wasn't great. It wasn't perfect. There's room for improvement. I can't wait to do it again. I just love sitting around a fire just in general. Uh, it's it's such a great, uh, I don't know, just such a great experience, especially in spooky season when things are getting cold. Of course, it's a, a thousand degrees here, but, you know, for other people, I'm sure it's very nice. And yeah, we got to we got to share that experience with my new dog who looks suspiciously like a timber wolf. So uh, it's been it's been a lot, gentlemen. It's been a lot going on since the last time we spoke. That is absolutely true. Now, Rich, uh, you got to enjoy the the fruits of Vic's labor in the morning. You came by while, of course, I was watching football by then. And uh, what's the verdict, man? How was the barbacoa goodness? Uh, tacos, I believe. Oh. oh yeah, I got some real good barbecue. Real good. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> the proprietor slash old man slash cook is is what you're doing there, right? <laughs> uh, the, that I am. Yeah, wasn't 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 quite as good as I'm sure that those uh those crazy kids in the in that van in 1974 were picking up from the roadside in Texas Chainsaw, but but it but it wasn't bad. Um, you know that that that's at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Barbecue. Like that was open pit smoked. 
based on the, the evidence that we'll see in the, the film tonight. Whereas what Vic's talking about, that's deep underground uh, cooking. That's a, you know, constant low intensity heat operation. So it's really apples and oranges. I don't want to compare the two and say <laughs> whose might be better. But, you know, Vic, I'm going to give you the, the edge. Wow. Wow. And it wasn't even human meat. That's 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 impressive. Well done. As, I mean, we, as far as you know, yeah, that was not confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm excited. I'm ready. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a Texan. My wife's a Texan. My family's from Texas. Uh, this is exciting. It really feels like a, a homecoming to get into this movie. Not just because I love the movie, but I love the way that it represents our people. And uh, <laughs> it feels genuine. You know, I could not be more excited to be doing an autopsy on Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. But as that's not going to happen, I am equally excited to be doing the original here tonight well it's a standing offer man if you ever want to do tcm2 um i will certainly show up with my microphone and i'm sure vic would say the same so uh we can we can still do that if you if you want us to but rich i know you're one of the hardest working men in show business uh please tell me you're hitting the sauce tonight at least a lone star or two right I, I really should have prepped for the Texas beer. Actually, that's a good call. Um, I don't have one in my hand yet. I, I promise by Act Two, I'll, uh, I'll I'll get one in here. But I gotta pace myself, so I'm gonna start light. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm about to crack one. Let's see. I haven't opened on Mike in a while. I don't know if that uh, that came through, but in the spirit of uh, the time, and I know we like to be an evergreen podcast and all that, yada yada yada, but. It is around Halloween as we record this, uh, or at least within a few weeks. And so I'm drinking the Elysian Howl at the Moon Pumpkin uh, Stout. So it's one of my go-tos around the Halloween season. And so that's what I'm going to be enjoying right out of the box. Vic, what do you have going on over there beverage-wise? Shit, that sounds good, John. Mm -hmm. Uh... I am I unlike Rich I have no intention of starting light so I am uh, enjoying a sixth glass quad <laughs> Of course is, you are uh, Of course just, and does at least have sort of devil horns on the the label so uh, nice. I do think it fits Rich I I wanted to ask you do you think in terms of our cultural association with the state of Texas does it go Alamo Texas Chainsaw Massacre is there anything in the in the middle there? In terms of just like popularity or, or, or pride. If you if you asked one hundred random Americans what they associate with uh, with this with the state of Texas, that's a good call. I mean, if you're gonna get into specifics, I don't know. Yeah, Alamo might 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 top it. That's what I mean. That's what Alamo number one, but TCM that would be number two, right? I'd like to think so. Maybe George W. Yeah, Bush? I, I don't know. <laughs> not <anymore>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not anymore. Uh, so my eyes are failing me. I call this Howl at the Moon. It's actually Dark of the Moon, um, if we want to get uh, correct on this, wow, as far as my beer were, goes. You were so close. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, it's pumpkin-y, I can tell you that. So uh, before we press play and watch this movie... Um, I want to kind of set the mood in context, and I, I also want to say by way of preface that I haven't yet delved into the 
production stories and the commentaries and all that for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I will do that before our big picture episode, but tonight for me at least, and you know, you guys can go however, whatever direction you want to, but I'm just going to be more sharing my impressions of the film on watch 25 or whatever this is, just kind of examining the story more closely than I ever have before. And uh, I can tell you right off the top, I know for certain we won't finish the whole movie tonight. And honestly, I don't think we'd do it justice if we did. So that's that's my preamble. Do you guys want to say anything before we get rolling? I will just share that my first time watching this was during my my horror binge fest when my stepsister and I really just dove into horror films starting at like eight or nine. And I remember getting this film on VHS and turning off all the lights and putting it in the in the VCR. And when the beginning starts, it was so unnerving and so unlike what I think either of us were expecting that it took me a while to appreciate the film. But it was that that first watch is one that has definitely stuck with me. Uh, my my whole horror career and it is a film that just grows on me uh, more and more as I watch it a lot of people have that relationship with the movie in the sense that like you know it's one of the scariest most disturbing most controversial most indelible horror films ever made and and I think we'll get into more of that kind of stuff when we do the big picture but uh, but yeah it's it's more than true so I'm going to read this opening crawl and I'm doing that to kind of like so that we really look at it in a sense. I'm not trying to best the great John Larroquette, but suck um, it, <laughs> You know, when the when the special edition comes out, it'll be my voice on this movie. <laughs> All right, here we go. John, can you read it as Christopher Walken? <laughs> I could, but I think it would kind of make a mockery of the whole situation. Wait, wait, wait. No, you're right. It would. I'm sorry. Read it as Donald Pleasant. <laughs> what about Donald Pleasant's doing Christopher Walken? How about that? <laughs> or Maggie Smith. You, the, the listeners don't know this. John has a pretty impressive Maggie Smith. <laughs> I'm not going to make him do it right now, but I've heard it. Uh, uh, well, when All we right. do the Downton Abbey uh, autopsy, that'll that'll come in. Come in handy. <laughs> okay. Maggie Smith does a fucking slasher film. <laughs> <laughs> She's got one in her. I know it. I'm I'm holding yeah, out hope. Maggie Smith. <laughs> I want to see Maggie Smith in X. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I love that well, idea. At, at this at, at this rate, Ty West is going to run out of cast members to put in his movie. So. <laughs> okay. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see, as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery 
of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love that it goes from this to a specific date. But before we really hit play together here, um, so yeah, guys, I'm going to go back to the beginning and get ready to go here. But do you have any thoughts on that? I have a few things that I'd like to call out. Great. One of them is like, I do have some questions from like a writing point of view, which is, why is it in particular Sally Hardestry and her invalid brother Franklin? Like the others aren't as important, right? Yeah. And it's not like they saw, I mean, Sally obviously sees more, like she sees horror that would live with her forever. But like Franklin doesn't see any more than the rest of the people. If anything, Pam sees more than, than Franklin does. Yes. So... There's that odd detail. Also, it's an idyllic summer drive. Aren't they going to investigate the desecration of a, of a grave site? <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Look, idyllic is kind of vague. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a, it all depends on your perspective. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a great setup. You know, I actually think that the, the Larroquette's read, not that yours isn't genius, John, um, <laughs> is, is very compelling. I like the way that, that like just sort of like sets like the this sort of like deadpan morose um, tone and like it ending in the in the title the way that it does like really like makes the the event that you're gonna about to see unfold feel like it is something of significance which of course it, it will turns out that that it is I'm, I'm sure as you guys both know that this is not this is like in the in the most loosest of sense is based on any sort of reality whatsoever. So they also kind of pulled a, a bit of a, like a Fargo here, you know, mm-hmm. decades before Fargo, where it's like they're they're setting something up as a true story that essentially isn't. And I, I know at least from the stuff that I was reading, like Hooper was saying that he was presenting that as basically like a, a commentary on the, the idea that the government has been lying to people um, in the in the seventies, which kind of like plays into some of the, the ideas that Hooper would would talk about with Chainsaw and like the way that it's like this like commentary on the socioeconomic status of America in the seventies. So it's interesting. I mean, there's there's a lot that's like loaded in here, but like just from a pure filmmaking level, like I think that like sitting through this like really kind of sets the table in a nice way, especially along with the, the credits that will follow. Yeah, it has a very credible docudrama kind of a vibe, doesn't it? That's very much my take on it, is it does, and even parts of this, just the early parts of this film, have a weird documentary feel, and some of that has to do with the the way that it's shot and the just the style and the kind of guerrilla filmmaking aspect of it all, but it lends this weird sense of reality to the whole thing. Uh, it's 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 very effective. I also it's interesting that you brought up the that Toby Huber was using this as a sort of a commentary in the way the government was lying to people. So I believe he was doing the same thing when he said that he directed Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was that was a, that was a shot, Toby. Wherever you are, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sure you directed all of it. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the gorillas because I thought their performance was excellent. I mean, the sign language was all like really on point. <laughs> and and 
and he does mean South American gorillas. There was a there was a uh, a rebel fighting force there who were deaf, unfortunately, and had to communicate through sign language. <laughs> the overlap with Woody Allen's bananas was just really unexpected. Uh, yeah, the. Um... I think the observations that Rich made were, were really uh, interesting there. And I, I think that it it does kind of come from an outsider perspective that doesn't seem all that dialed into the actual movie that we're going to see in, in several respects. It does kind of feel more like the kind of lens of history and hindsight and the media more than like this, you know, the the really visceral, true experience of the people that we're about to watch once it kind of departs from that docudrama kind of uh, vibe. But yeah, it is kind of an inconsistency as well. Like, I'm not totally sure that it's the absolute best way to approach it, but it, 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 it does have that kind of uh, vibe of, of people just, you know, in, interpreting things in broad strokes, and then we find out what it actually was like in the nitty-gritty. Yeah, I, I buy it as a, as a news item that, that ran, you know, in a, in a paper several towns away, uh, days after the incident, you know? Exactly. Or a book, perhaps. Maybe, maybe a dramatization a la in Cold Blood or something. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to see the media play a, a huge part in the in the open of this film, which I, I found really, really fascinating. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. But why don't we queue up on the frame where I, I have it at 16, where all that's on the screen is the film which you are about to see, and that, like the first two lines is an account of the tragedy. Can we uh, pause it there? I kind of, like, you have to kind of laugh at five youths, too, and think about, you know, um, <laughs> Joe Pesci for a second. But <laughs> That's uh, what this made me think of Star Wars a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's, if only the crawl was receding from us. Yeah. That's right. And it's yellow. Yeah, right. It predates it. I, right. uh, I, I heard a rumor at some point in my life that that Cat was only paid a dime bag for this performance. That makes that checks out. I have no idea if that's true or not. I know that it was his first role, and apparently he was just like friends with Cooper and well, did a favor. A lot of people were paid like on, with deferred compensation and stuff like that. All right, yeah, let's pause it here on that on that date because I did have a note there. So. I found it interesting that it's declaring that this isn't at some indeterminate past moment in history, like it's now. For people watching the movie when it first came out, that was less than a, no, it was a little over a year, because I think this movie came out in October October 1st, 1974, but you know, in the very recent past. And it's also saying when you when you put a hard date on something like that, uh, as uh, Return of the Living Dead does, a few movies do, but it, it's kind of saying forevermore that this story happened at this time. It's not playing that game where it could always be in our future, for example, or our recent past, or something uh, indeterminate. 
Well, it lends itself to that docudrama yeah. feel, right? Like it's they're they're telling you this is it happened on this date. I was just sad it didn't happen around Christmas. <laughs> How much better is this movie if Leatherface has like a Santa hat on? <laughs> I I already noticed. Uh, of course, we just covered Black Christmas, and it and you know as we said at when we did that movie, it came out the same year as Texas Chainsaw, and there are a lot of little similarities along the way that I, I I will kind of note but it's also like so so different in so many others but yes I, I think Leatherface with a Santa hat uh, Vic would would be the only way to improve this movie so thank you for for pointing that out I I did also want to point out by the way that they did bring Larroquette back to do the opening of the Texas Chainsaw 2022 correct yeah that's right yeah mm-hmm. so I'm sure he got a, a much more substantial paycheck for that. So little did he know in 1973 with his dime bag that it was going to pay off. He just had to wait 50 years. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice touch in the 2022 one. So unfortunately, uh, doing this watch this way, we won't get the benefit of the score or the sound effects or anything. But I think it really does kind of drive home how much black screen there is in this opening sequence like it's almost all black screen and you know practically subliminal flashes of these desecrated graves and these corpses uh being photographed by uh we would assume the the police after the fact well the the sound design is i think really important and sort of iconic yeah. about this film this film in general throughout the whole film i think the sound design is phenomenal in the score uh but in this opening in particular and one of the things that that i noticed really in this opening sequence but it definitely carries through the film the editing in this film is exceptional and i think that it's i i, I genuinely mean this as a compliment this is like the the best version of putting somebody in their editing bay with like a mountain of coke (laughs) and this is and you know but like that's everything is sort of instinctual and it's you know i mean it's a little bit like it's it it almost reminds me of of sort of latter career tony scott you know whereas dennis hopper's last movie is like the worst version of that this Mm. is the this is the best version of it uh yeah I I totally agree with that that the the editing is is fantastic in this movie um and and it's very effective here as we get these just quick flashes of these hideous severely decayed corpses but I think what hit me even more is how artfully the radio hit segues from thing to thing like it it it's so convincing and believable and like we open with some other news story and then we come to this one the one that we're essentially looking at with this ghastly monument that we're about to watch for a while the hour's top news story is this grave robbing in texas so in a way the texas chainsaw massacre is already on everyone's minds it's already in the media but it hasn't even happened yet, at least not the part that John Larroquette was talking about. And I love that this news report that goes on underneath this sequence is so loaded with exposition 
and yet it just seems like an actual news report. I mean that in a in a good way. We learn so much. The scene is set so clearly in this radio hit that the forthcoming scenes after it can skip a lot of the exposition and just let things unfold in a as naturalistic of a documentary style as possible. Well, and I feel like and I will dive into this uh, in in greater depth when we do the big picture. But this is really the part that feels to me inspired by Ed Gein. That you really, this is, this I feel like is the the imagery and the ideas that uh, Hooper really, really gleaned from that true life experience. Now he went in lots of other wild directions with it and we'll see more when we get to the house. But this here is, I mean, you know, we, we don't really come back to the, the idea of grave robbing. Uh, uh, again, we're just getting where you're getting the idea here. You're going to get the payoff later. But I love that idea that in the midst of this documentary feel, he's also plugging in these ideas from a very real life uh, uh, serial killer and, and, and grave robber. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's definitely um, one of the clear, uh, but of several influences that he's, he's drawing on. There's some other killers, I think, that that's come up in the uh, in his discussion of the film. But the radio also says that what appeared to be a grisly work of art, and that might be just a, a few frames ahead, but I don't want to you know hit pause 30 times. And I just think it, it says a lot about who is responsible for this. They are so comfortable with badly decomposed bodies that they make art installations with them. Now, whether that art is of serious intent or just a gag, I'm not sure what's scarier. But think about it. Like, how telling is this detail that we're getting that this is the kind of thing our antagonists do? There's an, there's an implication in a later scene. I, I could be wrong when we get back to it, but my read on it was that this is specifically the work of the hitchhiker character. That's a question uh, that that came up for me. Like, is it is all the art, quote-unquote, that we see in the movie his creation, or is it some combination of him and Leatherface? And that's something I, I do want to kind of puzzle out if we can. So the newscaster also says, in some instances, only parts of a corpse had been removed. And as we play this a little bit farther, we'll see that in the case of this grisly work of art that we're looking at, indeed, uh, a head alone seems to have been taken to complement the main figure. And also the hands are so large that it makes me wonder if they perhaps could have come from a third donor. So let's go ahead and hit play unless you guys want to put in something before we, we move forward here. Only that the the effects work on these corpses is frighteningly realistic. Oh, yeah. They're pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it just like the, the idea of them being severely or like there's, there's a couple different words, but just like decomposition at its most horrible and dehumanizing is kind of what these are. You know, there's, then uh, we'll learn, you know, this is someone's grandpa, father, husband, son, you know, like, and, and that whole dimension we'll, we'll get into, but uh, 
the the movie really sinks its teeth into this, uh, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So the town of Newt, apparently, is... Let's hit play. So, yeah, I guess Newt is the nearest town. I don't know if that's a real town. Is it, Rich? No, Newt's a fictional town. Okay, thanks. This is such a long, like, artful, patient shot. It's so interesting that it really is, like, the first true shot of the film. Because, like, the movie never takes a uh, point about the editing. Like, you know, like, it never really takes this level of, like, patience and thoughtfulness to a shot again i don't think uh, i think there's a couple but yeah this is such a stately grand epic shot i mean the the, the smoke or dust blowing behind him and the lighting is like kind of beautiful but 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 terrible it, it is a really striking shot okay let's pause it on uh the thing about linked to elements outside the state i think i i definitely want to mention that. I thought this is part of the social commentary. There's dark comedy in the line that the sheriff has found strong evidence linking the crime to elements outside the state. And not only uh, is it com darkly comedic in the fact that the sheriff's conclusion is clearly so, so wrong, these elements are very much inside your state, but I think we get that satire of government deception that, uh, that Rich was alluding to earlier as well. We know that the sheriff can't possibly have that evidence. So he's either greatly misinformed or just spinning a PR yarn for his own purposes. Well, and a, I don't know, a, a commentary by, Tex, by uh, Toby Hooper on the state of Texas, right? No Texan could do this. Right. It must be somebody from Oklahoma or Arkansas. Actually, actually sounds mm. pretty accurate. Yeah. Probably a Californian. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's probably an element of it too, as as well. That um, it's it's just this sort of knee jerk reaction that, of course, this can't be one of our own, right? There's also an escalation going on that apparently these guys have been removing whole corpses and body parts from the cemetery for quote unquote some time unnoticed, but now for some reason with this monument with this wired up corpse they decided it's time for you all of you to notice our creation maybe it means we're done here maybe it doesn't but there it's definitely sending the message that now we're ready for you to know what we're doing what do you make of that I don't know. I feel like that implies a level of premeditation that I do not associate with these characters. Yeah, but even even like I'm not saying like you know it was like a a written plan or something. I'm just saying that like they were playing within the rules to a degree that meant they were being covert. They were keeping it on the down low, and something in someone's mind or you know, both of their minds changed and they're like, you know what? We're like, we, we take these things home and we create our art. This one at this time, like we're just going to go ahead and put it on display. And I, I just, I think that's a big escalation. I mean, that's a step forward in their, in their pathology, in their crimes, in their brazenness. And I, I think it's significant. John, I uh, honestly, I mean, you're absolutely right. 
I really have to think about it. I don't have a good answer, but you're, it is, I mean, the classic question, right? Why now? Right. Why after robbing graves for, as you said, months to years, did they now put the bodies in the cemetery where anybody could find it instead of taking them home and making, you know, furniture and lamps out of it? I don't have a good answer. I think that that's something I'm going to keep my eye on as we go through the film. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have a, you know, a, a, a whole interpretation myself at this point. But yeah, it's something that really struck me, and for the reasons you said, you know, it's one of the big questions of horror. You know, why do things escalate? Why do they take it to the next level now? Like, you know, why, why um, come out of the shadows? Right? Okay. And we also get, before we hit play here, the catalyst that brings our characters together is, of course, the idea that families would go to a cemetery that has been desecrated in this way, horrified at the prospect of learning that their beloved, you know, their loved ones, their sister, father, child, whoever, wife, had been used in the creation of this art. And what a scenario that is to think about, you know, being a part of yourself. And I also think it's kind of baiting a line, too. If it's not the family doing that consciously, which I, I don't really think it is, in, in some way the universe is casting a fishing line here that, that the kids that we follow are our youths. <laughs> They're going to bite on that line. And that's what brings them here. It really is a unique experience when we're doing these autopsies that you sometimes hover over images like that mm-hmm. for like five minutes. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I know. Like, of course, we're talking about that mounted corpse. It's just such a striking image. Um, but we, we segue from that uh, in the film to, I guess, this ambiguous title sequence imagery is the roiling surface of another planet, perhaps Mars. Uh, I know I knew this at, at some time, but uh, I definitely think that it's overtly tying the whole astrology angle of the film right in at the start. And it's something, maybe these are just sunspots. I think that's actually what it is. But um, I, I think that I'm going to be fascinated to discuss the astrology stuff with you guys tonight. John, I'm always fascinated to discuss astrology. <laughs> I was interested to go back and explore the litany of horrors that is just unrolling endlessly on the news in the background. Yes. Like, There's nothing but bad news in Texas all throughout the credits. There's a there's a Texaco plant that has exploded. There's a man that has committed suicide following uh, the, the loss of a local sports team. Um, and there's a, now we're on a story of a random attack that, that, that has unfolded. Again, this does feel like commentary about the state of Texas by Toby Hooper. Yeah, I was seeing, like, just before we went on today, like, I, I had enough time to poke around a little bit and apparently he had been struck by the frankness of the local news in describing graphic crimes and you very much get that in this radio segment like we're not even at the worst part yet but there's this yeah deadpan uh, stating of just the most horrible horrible things and I, I think it is obviously, yeah, very, very mindful on Hooper and Henkel's part as the uh, co-screenwriters here. But um, 
we're not getting that the music of course but we want to um, highlight of course that this is another discordant unconventional score that for me reminded me a bit of Black Christmas actually and we'll talk about that along the way I'm sure but it also coexists with the radio report here which as Rich said just keeps cycling through these seemingly unrelated stories and just another thought question whatever is is it all unrelated is it possible that the movie is suggesting everything is connected in some sinister way partially maybe two sinister ways as the hand of the family members might be touching more than is known but also the universe itself like the solar system in some way that we live in could be cruelly insane in its own right and I think there's going to be a lot of dialogue toying with that idea but there's also you know the visuals here these volcanic eruptions on screen during the sequence which clearly have an otherworldly vibe like it's happening on another planet and it's difficult to decipher and make sense of but yeah I'm I'm 90% sure these are sunspots that we're looking at and why present as filmmakers imagery of an interplanetary interplanetary nature in a movie called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre I don't think it's all just misdirection and tomfoolery, satire of hippies and people that believe in astrology or something like that. I think there's intent here. And I think that part of the crime thing, yeah, maybe it's talking about Texas specifically, but I don't think so. I I think it's kind of saying there's an epidemic of insanity going on and it's caused by what? Things like this really weird and disturbing story of one and almost two men that, as Rich mentioned, jumped out of high windows because their ball game was blacked out in their area. Like, that's that's madness, you know? And we paused it on this woman inexplicably attacking a police lieutenant, and, and, and she didn't even know why she did it, apparently. And then there's... I think the next one is this building collapse that killed 29 people. And you're thinking, oh, well, that one's different, right? In this litany of horrors, that's a hand of God. But uh, but no, like that, that story ends on more human horror because it's either gross negligence or, or sabotage uh, that caused this, this building collapse. And either way, bad people are probably more responsible for this building collapse than quote-unquote God. So, yeah, something else that I saw just tonight was that, yeah, I think Hooper is thinking about the evil that men do, like, very much here. Uh, but, you know, in in more ways than, in, than are just strictly obvious. A local newt rancher was anally raped to death <laughs> by a Clydesdale. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, that would be Hand of God, right? I mean, like, the Clydesdale... <laughs> it turned out that he had been violating the horse on a nightly basis. Okay, there you go. Three years prior. <laughs> the Clydesdale had been trained for this specific purpose <laughs> for over four years. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. What that made me think of actually was the first Friday the 13th. We talked about the, the girl has the dream about the rain of blood coming down. And this idea of the Friday the 13th, that there's this kind of 
cosmic coming together of portents that lead to all these murders. Um, I mean, that's it's not uh, it's not something that's sort of directly stated, but that is the idea that there's just evil in the air around us. And I think you, you definitely might be onto something there, especially because we come out of that, uh, the, the roiling sunspots and into what looks like a still shot of the sun. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the imagery and the dialogue are going to be relentless through the first half of this movie, uh, dealing with this, this concept. So, yeah, there are a lot of images of the sun and the moon and stuff in this film. And roadkill as we go to a uh, freshly killed armadillo as the radio continues. Uh, seriously, fuck, fuck that armadillo. <laughs> it's, it's actually been, uh, it's been, been taxidermy. Oh, oh really? Created by the uh, production designer. Wow. It's... Where did they find a taxidermied armadillo in Texas, Rich? No, like he stuffed it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, the the people that came up with the stuff that we the props and stuff are pretty disturbing. Oh yeah, so we're talking about like men's genitalia being carved away and victims being identified initially as women, you know, like it's it gets rougher and rougher while we're also meeting our our kids, our main characters. Uh that's all playing in the background as we see Oh boy, we got to pause it here for the introduction of one of the most indelible characters in in horror. <sighs> yes. This is a guy that this poor sad sack, a young man who has not transcended the potentially character building life obstacle of being paraplegic. Here we get the very very rarely depicted story of someone who regardless of his unfortunate physical condition is not plucky brave, wise, compassionate, none of those things. He's a selfish little baby on an arrested development case. He is a strange, twitchy, insistently unlikable human being you would not want to hang out with. He is Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> the Shelley of, uh, from Friday the 13th, Friday God, I mean, yeah. I think Shelley is, like, so relatable and likable compared to this guy. <laughs> I would actually disagree with that. Mm. I kind of, I, I find myself, the more I watch this film, being a little more sympathetic to him. Interesting. I don't know. It's It just must be, it must be so hard for him to be on this trip. And obviously everyone's sort of accommodating, but, like, just what we're getting ready to watch is him on the side of the road trying to pee into a coffee can. Like, But it's how you do things. Everything about this is so hard for him. Oh, yeah. Like, um, he's doing it in a way, like, just observe the little, the body language, the expressions, the, you, you, you know, like, he is, he's like, he is still kind of a loathsome character, regardless of your sympathy for the basics condition basics of his condition as, you, as we go through this i'm going to look cuz i feel like when I, I watched this the other night there were there were definitely some moments that i saw him recognize that about himself and try to reach out 
and try to be more accommodating and try to uh, play off of that, which is what made him sympathetic to me. So if those come up, mm-hmm. I will point them out. Great. No, absolutely do so. And it's not as though I didn't, you know, observe moments along the way either that I see different facets of him. You know, I don't think he's like a a caricature or something. Like I, I think he's he's got more than one dimension and, and is an interesting character. It's just that he is is not, I guess, the stereotype that you would normally get with a, a person that is dealing with a handicap uh, of some kind or, you know, a challenge like this, a physical challenge, uh, where we just have to make them just the greatest person in the world. That's See not... Right the 13th part two. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rich, uh, do you have any opening thoughts on Franklin or do you want to save it for later? <laughs> uh, I, th- I think we'll have plenty of opportunities to, uh, to, <laughs> to rag on Franklin. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right, right. right now, I'm paused on a on a freeze frame of him about to unzip his pants with his face all screwed up. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm okay hitting play. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a big, broad performance, um, but I think also a a weirdly compelling one. And again, I just want to point out one more time that throughout this sequence, we're we're hearing the news break. And it's just story after story about different acts of violence that people are committing against each other day after day after day. And I, I just want to reiterate what a what a presence that is in this uh, in this film. And so yeah, we're we're watching him, you know, like furtively, awkwardly pull out his Johnson, and he's looking around like is somebody watching, and he's, you know, just sort of struggling away here and now a big truck is coming and the truck goes by and it's such a sort of spray of dirt or whatever that franklin goes hurtling down this hillside rolls ass over tea kettle just rolls and rolls and rolls and then the the final indignity is this wheelchair rams into his leg and kirk the character of kirk who is, I guess, the boyfriend of the Pam character, comes to, to, to check on him. Let's pause it when she picks up this book, of uh, the horoscope book. If you guys can go to, maybe it's back for you, maybe it's forward, but it's 636, and she's about to open her horoscope maker book, which is at odds to this seeming drama of the moment where... I mean, this is kind of a major fall, right, that that he takes. It's Franklin. It's not a minor incident. The spill looks like it could be bad. And yet, uh, I, I already know Vic's answer. Um, did you chuckle just a bit when the wheelchair hit his motionless body in the leg when it falls him down the hill? I don't know. I'm going to hell. But... <laughs> John, we will we will add the disabled to the list uh, with the Scandinavians of, of people that you just indiscriminately hate. I was, I was mostly struck by this is the first uh, occurrence of a, a, an editorial technique. Uh, now that you've brought up Beck, um, that's repeated a few times in this, where they they clearly did multiple takes from different angles with a single camera, and then the editor, like every time there's a, a anything that is somewhat frenetic is happening 
the editor just seems to cut indiscriminately from take to take um, <laughs> what becomes like a chaotic like mess of an event uh, it'll happen again frequently with Sally when she uh, endures her like night of horrors with the with the family but they, they employ it here too is just rolling down the hill I never would have thought that like the Tony Scott illusion at all and I think that's excessive as as an illusion but I am kind of reminded at least by your guys' conversation of a movie like Domino. Did you ever see that? I did, but I don't really remember it. Kira Knightley and Mickey Rourke are in it and it it is just this like just throw the footage in a blender and put it on the screen is kind of how it feels. I mean even more than something like man on fire so i i think that's like the ultimate extreme of of an editing style but i i do see what you guys are talking about here but i think it creates a chaos and a dynamism that is largely pretty effective well what's what's interesting is that it cuts through me if you just like kind of dissect it on like a stylistic level is that it actually works against that documentary feel that Vic was talking about. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of the antithesis of, of documentary style. But there's definitely something that, like, kind of breaks the, the sense of reality that I think you get elsewhere. Um, you know, I, I kind of chalk it up to this was an independent film made by young people doing their, their first work. I mean, I don't know. It, it doesn't especially offend me. I just notice it. It kind of takes me out of it. I think that's true, but I would also say that there's something to be said for the fact that it opens with this very strong sort of documentary feel. And as you said, this technique in the editing, you get a little bit of it here, you get a little bit of it later on, but it becomes more and more pervasive until you get to that night of horrors, at which point it really feels like you've descended from something that felt like reality into something that feels like madness. Now, I can't say that they plan to do it that way, but I think it, it, it sort of plays as a journey, not just for the, the characters, but also in terms of the style. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that while it's not strictly hewing to a docudrama or even, you know, let alone a documentary feel in the early going, this movie just, it's like the frog in the pot, you know, like turning up the heat ever so slowly, but steadily. And we just become more and more tense until I will say that like the second half of this movie is probably the most intense cinema you're ever going to run into in any, any genre. And it is the intensity of sheer madness. And I think that the film needs to somewhat dabble in subjectivity early enough to to really create that progression so that it's not abrupt when it goes there uh, towards the end. The the way out of this, like before we actually hit play, is that I think, you know, I, I mentioned that we are going to go, like, Pam is in the van looking at this book while he's falling down the hill, doesn't seem bothered by it, and I don't think the movie is going for sympathy here at all, because we hard cut from Franklin's big fall to him complaining about the heat, and uh, I think it's uh, Kirk just taking in his bitching with little sympathy. 
and like it's it's interesting that the movie doesn't it just skips over actually like picking him up or you know figuring out is 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 there any serious damage and we go right to him kind of being a pill again and and Pam talking about astrology <laughs> yeah, it kind of begs the question of like why did the event happen at all in terms of like plotting of the film yeah it does doesn't it other than just like showing how hapless Franklin is again you know that this is the kind of thing that happens to him I guess I don't know what the point of that is but it's an interesting question other than like making the statement that we're not supposed to feel bad for him sort of anyway um, before we hit play play I will say um, we should hit pray, but no. Pam's astrology talk is about malefic planets and evil. And I think there's always been this faintly supernatural, grander idea operating under the surface of this movie. And this is where we really start to develop it. I don't think Toby Hooper is saying that the universe or even humanity are this thing or that thing and it's all settled and he has it figured out and this is his message to the world. I think he's toying with various possible explanations for why and how this kind of evil operates among us. So she t starts talking about the idea of being in retrograde and how it connects to the date Again, back to this specific day and what it may or may not, the influence it may have. And Jerry is like totally dismissive of it. I'm also noticing in the background of the shot that like they actually did like, there's like a wound on Franklin's arm. Like, Oh, that's cool. There's like a, I mean, there, there's a level of like carryover from, from that scene. Mm -hmm. well, that's, that's because Toby Hooper actually pushed him down a hill. Probably, yeah, yeah. Sure, maybe the maybe the wound happened first, and they were like, "Uh-oh, we need to see to justify this." All right, let's go ahead and pause it here as she's talking to the locals. I'll pause it on thank you, uh, seven forty-six, because I think we're getting back into the social commentary kind of a thing with these farmer guys. Uh, that's interesting, but backtracking just a bit um, to. All of that is throwaway dialogue, right? About the astrology and, and all of that, like. Your throwaway character, your throwaway dialogue that characters are, are tossing around, it could set up or advance the plot. It could introduce key things that they want us to know about the characters or anything else. But I think it's notable that Hooper and Henkel want to advance the idea that perhaps August 17th, 1973 was a day of great vulnerability to evil. And whether or not you believe in this kind of astrology talk, there's an ominous suggestion of fate, of larger forces conspiring against us. And I think many things in this film give us the unmistakable sense that the world is not under our control. And of course, humanity and Americans in particular like to deceive ourselves and believe that it is. Well, and I would argue and I'm curious to hear your guys' response to this, that one of the, the very few weaknesses in this film is that the characters of Jerry and Pam and Kirk, outside of this, as you just as you were saying, John, 
these these conversations are not particularly illuminating about their character, except insofar as Pam is interested in astrology, uh, and so they 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 don't get much. They don't they don't get much meat to chew on. Uh, they really are sort of sort of cannon fodder. Now, I as a as a person who loves horror films, I'm totally happy to to let that slide if you're using it to introduce big ideas. And it sounds like that's what uh, what Hooper's doing here. And John, I agree. Again, I agree with you. I agree with I agree with that interpretation. But the character development, not one of this film's strong suits, I would say, even compared to Black Christmas uh, or Halloween, for instance. I agree with that. But it is possible that they're not just satirizing if they are satirizing um, or at least like having fun with the odiousness of Franklin. I think there is an element of critique for the certainly the male characters. And I mean, I'm talking about Kirk and Jerry in this film, and it's a little more subtle than with Franklin, who's just like such a childish putts right um but i think there's like a lot of subtler moments where we see like even right here in the scene that we're paused on that these guys are not not capable of handling these situations that they're going to be facing and there could be some i don't know satire or criticism of the kind of free-spirited naive hippies that these, all of these characters, but specifically the guys, kind of represent. And I think that possibly somewhat in the tradition of horror movies where they don't want us to be sobbing as these wonderful, fully realized characters are, you know, terrorized, traumatized, and murdered, which, again, we've had this debate a thousand times on this show. I think I'm more okay with than you are where you really want to love the characters. I think a little more, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, I think that that, that dynamic is going on here as well. John, don't put anything in my mouth. First of all, (laughs) second of all, but I would say, I don't have to like the characters, but I do like it when they're, when they're fleshed out, when I feel like I know them somewhat. But that said, speaking of characters that I know, I really uh, feel a kinship with this super drunk guy sitting in a tire. <laughs> as, I, as I've aged, as I'm now uh, in my 40s, he speaks to me. John, these kids, they're fucking cannon fodder. Chainsaw them, you know what I mean? But this guy, I know where this guy's coming from. My observation is that maybe these farmer guys are so disenfranchised, so bored and just scraping by at this moment in time. Some are getting pass out drunk at a cemetery, which is the dude you're talking about. It is saying something about these people, the community, and these times. But it also gives us the drunk, the primordial crazy Ralph in Friday the 13th, a few uh, years later, who knows what's up. Because this guy who's wasted in the middle of the day in a field, part of it might be because he's seen things. And we'll get that as we hit play here. But he's, he says there's a line here where he says, there's them that laugh and know better. Which I think kind of indicates, yeah, crazy Ralph-like level of experience with what is being 
swept under the rug or ignored, but this guy might be really aware of what... Are we calling them the Sawyers? Like, are, are they... Does the family have a name at all until the second one? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. But, John, I just want to say, too, I was mm-hmm. making a joke. I think you're absolutely right. When they pick up the hitchhiker, he talks about jobs being lost as technology's moving in. That's exactly what I think these characters are representative of. Excellent. Well, glad that you saw reason for once. <laughs> God, I hate you so much. <laughs> Rich? This is why you don't get any barbacoa, John. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no barbacoa for me. Rich, uh, before we hit play, do you have any thoughts on this? I really like the character who's about to show up, who immediately, like, as soon as, like, a blonde is out of the car looking for something, just grabs her by the arm and starts leading her away. Yes! I'm glad that you mentioned that, because it kind of ties back to... I think her boyfriend and and just the whole thing is that like this I, I assume this guy's a cop but he's more manly than any of the guys that we're going to be following and he just steps right in there to usher this dude's girlfriend away who we, who the girlfriend is Sally our our lead and it's all like seemingly above board but I think it's perhaps the beginning of some commentary on these three guys not necessarily sympathetic commentary yeah, this dude just sweeps in, <laughs> takes her off. I feel I like I should have been played by Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yes. So Franklin is listening to the the drunk rant about the things that they don't tell about that are going on and the things that he's seen. Franklin ends up being privy to a lot. He knows what's going on. He just isn't ever able to do anything about it. I admire someone. If he's just drinking, like, standard Texas uh, Pilsner beer, he had to have a lot of it yeah. to get to that, uh, that, get to that state. Yeah, that's like 30 or 40 beers for me, probably. <laughs> we just blew through or or even skipped over more exposition here that you normally, I think, would get. Uh, we don't see Sally talking to the sheriff we're suddenly back in the moving van. Sally's there too. And we end the whole cemetery storyline like right there with a couple of dialogue, lines of dialogue uh, as they as they leave. And we're moving on. And so we never find out if there was anything wrong with her grandfather's grave, right? No, I don't think we do. Which is weird. One little note about the Crazy Ralph performance. He As he's talking there, uh, we just watched it, but... He he's like gurgling for a second as if he's about to puke at the end of it and, and then he recovers. And I thought I don't know if that was acting or method or or, or, or what, but it was just a, a nice little touch of realism. That's just experience, John. <laughs> yeah. So the the kids pick up this the stench of death. Uh, immediately after leaving the the cemetery, or at least you know when we pick up their story, and we're about to get some more critical dialogue about you know the source of that stench, which is the slaughterhouse, and we'll learn that Sally and Franklin's grandfather used to sell his cattle to this slaughterhouse, and to this very day they have an uncle who works for one of these places. My read on that was perhaps their family has come down in the world, too, a little bit, like our slaughterhouse employee family. But at least their uncle is still employed. This slaughterhouse hasn't employed anyone for a long time. But the idea that their grandfather would sell cattle to the slaughterhouse and had this big brick house 
but now you know there's no one living there and their their relative i guess he's lucky to have a job but that's that's about it there's sort of a coming down in 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 station going on here or am i imagining that i don't know it's a little more about the flexibility to change with the times Mm. And that's when when they when they pick up the hitchhiker and we'll obviously we'll get into that. But there's much discussion over the use of technology versus the old fashioned way and which one's better. Uh, and so I think if you're still working, it's because you embrace the technology. I mean, I'm not getting the impression like we don't know exactly where Sally and Franklin are living or. Uh, but I, I I don't get like a bougie vibe off of them that like, well, you know, granddad sold cattle and now our family is set for life. Like I, maybe I'm crazy, but you know, the, the general malaise of the early seventies sort of suggests that maybe everyone has the American dream is sort of dying on a larger scale. I don't know. Perhaps, but I mean, you also don't get the feeling that they're like from like around here. Like no. these seem like they're in Round Rock. These are Austin kids, you know. <laughs> yeah, these are definitely like they, they might be sort of like lower, like middle class, but they're not. They're not worried about where the next meal is coming from. Well, I mean, we're gonna find out they they didn't get gas when they should have. We're gonna see that they're very receptive to hitchhiking. It kind of, to me, it suggested that they've hitchhiked themselves and. I just I don't get like a, a super prosperous vibe. This is gonna go without saying, and I know Rich, you haven't necessarily seen this movie. Well, maybe you have, but the whole vibe of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 is just unbelievably pampered. Our young people are in that movie, and I just I'm not getting that at all from this group. But I don't know. Let's uh, let's hit play, shall we? Pam is so expressive. Like I, you always know what Pam is thinking. Because they smell this horrible scent of the slaughterhouse. But it doesn't bother Franklin. And we, we kind of zoom in on his face and his avid interest. And I think this is actually very significant. And so he starts relaying the story, you know, about their relationship to slaughterhouses. And he's, we're going to find that he's endlessly fascinated with this. And including with the, the gory details. Talking about you know how it used to be done and it, they wouldn't kill them on the first lick when they're slaughtering cattle. It would take two hits of the hammer, which we will find is true with humans too, soon enough. And, and we... it sort of does double duty because you you have to part of this information is important as we come to understand the the family that they're going to encounter, but it also speaks to just how much Franklin doesn't realize that no one wants to hear this. Yes, that is true too. But look at his enthusiasm for it. He's autistic, or he's on the he's on the, on the autism scale. It just mm-hmm. clicked with me. Yeah, he, he's dumping information about something that no one is particularly interested in. His difficulty understanding the emotional read of the other people in the car. I bet you dollars to donuts. I believe it. I think that Franklin, our ever delightful Franklin, is showing in that big. I wouldn't call it a monologue, but his enthusiastic words about the brutal details of cattle slaughter. I think he's showing at least an echo of the other family's nature in himself when he feasts upon those those details. He's amused by the fact that the sledgehammer usually wouldn't kill him on the first lick. It's certainly not something that horrifies him. So there's that. 
and we see the cattle, like the this I guess stock footage or whatever of these cattle while he's talking about it on a on a cattle ranch. I don't know if they're actually driving by it or what the deal is, but they look like terrified victims as the score turns uh, nerve jangling, and Franklin becomes increasingly excited by the the story that he's telling. And even when he adds that sometimes they would skin them before they were even dead, he's still not horrified. But I think that the larger purpose of this dialogue may be that we're also learning about who we're dealing with in this movie. We're dealing with the guys who did that kind of shit to cattle, and now they're unemployed. Wonder what they're going to do. It's a little bit like American Werewolf in London, you know, that they're, <laughs> they show up to the slaughtered lamb. And here we have we have the you know similar characters driving by a slaughterhouse, and learning about uh, the history of of how cattle are killed. And I think we end the scene on Sally's line. Uh, it's terrible, and it's still going on. I think that that had kind of a dual purpose. That line it's still going on in more ways than one, as they're about to find out. They go straight from this disturbing conversation to Hitchhiker! <laughs> there's like immediate support among them for picking him up. I think there's a trust, probably a naivete in immediate evidence here. These kids are like, oh, hot day, poor guy, of course we'll pick him up. Like I said earlier, I think you get the feeling they're pretty uh, well disposed to the average hitchhiker. and yeah, They've probably hitchhiked themselves. I think they're still really not living in the world that they're actually in today, on this day in the scene. I get the feeling that, yeah, while without being overly genteel and prosperous and pampered, I think all of these kids' lives have probably been pretty nice. Through everything that's gone on in the world and their country over the last decade, from, you know, the incredibly turbulent 60s to the economic woes, uh, stagflation, and all the problems that were, uh, you know, Vietnam still going on in the early part of the 70s. They've either blissfully ignored it or noticed but only speculated about the horrors of the world. But today their pleasant dream will end, and reality is going to be very, very challenging. The hitchhiking thing, too, I think is generational. Like My parents hitchhiked Mm -hmm. in the the 70s. I mean, fucking... Charles Manson hitchhiked from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Somebody picked that guy up, you know. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah, definitely a cultural practice of the time. Yeah. Even though, like, as Vic talked about last time we we, uh, recorded the golden era, the halcyon age of the serial killer that this movie is smack dab in the middle of, by the 80s, I think everyone was like, are you fucking nuts? Never pick up a hitchhiker, hitchhiker, right? Not, maybe not yet in the in the early 70s. John, it was also a sexual revolution. And, and you can hear Pam saying, wait, what does he look like? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she says, oh, he's weird looking. What's going to happen when you pick up a hitchhiker? There's a, uh, oh, shit. There's a, there's a movie, I can't remember what it's called, but it's about kids driving to a Kiss concert. And they see a hitchhiker on the side of the road. So you're talking, again, right around this time, sort of mid-70s. And one of the kids says, no, 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 we can't stop. This is how horror movies start. And one of the kids in the back says, yeah, but it's also how pornos start. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's the discussion that's happening here around this guy. They, you know, Pam's hoping it's going to be a porno, but it's going to be a horror movie. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a genuine, 
eagerness to oh you know a new uh, a wild card in our group dynamic like i i think they really are optimistic that uh this person will shake things up in a in a fun way if not an overtly sexual way and uh well he does shake things up <laughs> detroit rock city Boom! I haven't seen that. No, I have not seen that movie. I actually knew that, but I did not want to validate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just have to take your word for that now. I like, I yeah. It was Eddie Furlong. Yeah. I love how Rich, like, quietly fact checks us, but seldom actually like, says whether or not we're right. <laughs> well, sometimes it's, like, tough to get in there. It's, it's like, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to bring Detroit Rock City to this conversation? Good point. Good point. I made a choice. <laughs> I think it was the right one. <laughs> Sally's like, give the guy a break. He can sit by Franklin. She's she's joking. And then Pam's like, oh, he's weird looking. No. But it's too late. They're, they're, they've already pulled over. You can see from the spasmodic twitching of the hitchhiker's arms as he races up to the vehicle. Uh, he's going to be a character. Remember, Loomis gets picked up as a hitchhiker in uh, Halloween 5. Mm, that's right. That's right. But Loomis is Loomis. This guy is somebody else. <laughs> this guy's performance is bananas. Like, it's yeah. this whole thing is so uncomfortable. Like, this is every time you, like, don't stop and pick up a hitchhiker, this is why. <laughs> exactly. Like, this is the worst possible iteration of this scenario. And I love that it like just mostly sticks to being socially uncomfortable. You know, not a lot. Like, of course, it escalates very steadily. But this guy is making a social effort the whole time. He's just a freak. <laughs> yeah, I, I briefly shared my apartment with a... Uh, we had a friend visit who had had a, a schizophrenic break, and we didn't realize it. And this is traumatizing to me because that's what it reminds me of is, is that weekend that this guy came and stayed with us. Yikes. Yeah, the awkwardness. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I know this guy, that the, the actor said he based his portrayal um, on a schizophrenic uh, relative. Oh, wow. Well, that's he, interesting. He nailed it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, between... Him and and Leatherface and the commentary on Franklin. It's, it's interesting. There's there's a realm of like psychological. You know, I don't know if they don't qualify necessarily as like as disorders. Definitely an, an array of like personality traits that you're getting in this film. Oh yeah. Rich, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that whatever's wrong with with Leatherface qualifies as a disorder. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, from the beginning here, like the body language screamed, uh-oh, with our hitchhiker. And uh, when he gets into the car, a, a van, the van, a skeptical Pam is looking at him with just unadulterated alarm, which I found kind of amusing. Whereas everyone else's faces initially are kind of neutral to maybe cautiously uh, open. And then we dive right into a lot of uh, slaughterhouse talk. And the hitchhiker says that he was at the slaughterhouse, which was closed. So you kind of wonder, 
you, you know, the mind does speculate what he was doing there. He had some business at the closed, the abandoned slaughterhouse. And so the the issue of like the old way of doing things, as I, I think Vic touched on, versus the new way when it comes to uh, slaughtering cattle, that is discussed. And again, Franklin has a real interest and enthusiasm for the subject. And I think, I dare say, is actually connecting with the hitchhiker, as we'll see, on at least one level. But the hitchhiker says uh, they died better that way and uh, the old way of with the sledgehammer of killing the, the cows. And what his version of better looks like, uh, well, we obviously have to question. But then he immediately says the new way put people out of their jobs. And that's why the old way was better. So even this freak is relatable and understandable, at least in, in, in one way. And I, I did find it fascinating and kind of funny that Franklin is really engaging him throughout this sequence. He agrees that the boiled-down fat is good, as he puts it, with, with some emphasis. He's definitely playing along, but you know what? I, I don't think it's all an act. I think that he shows in se- at several times, in several ways, a certain kinship to the hitchhiker. There's definitely scenes that come later down the road where I'd say like he borders on like admiration of him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Maybe it is a certain like social disconnection that they both feel a lack of fitting in a fascination with something that's like sort of like unappealing to others. So I think it gets back to a little bit of what I was saying about, about Franklin being on the autism spectrum. Like I, uh, I'm going to go way out of left field and say that it reminds me of a character from the Mitchells versus the Machines, which is fabulous, by the way, if you haven't seen it. There's a kid clearly sort of somewhere on that spectrum, is obsessed with dinosaurs, finds another kid who's obsessed with dinosaurs and like can't wait to talk about dinosaurs. And poor Franklin's been stuck in this van trying to talk about slaughterhouses with people who don't want to hear it. And now here's this guy. Who's super into it? He's a little weird. We can we can still connect on that. But then he gets he gets too weird. But I do think Franklin is fascinated with the killing and with the the food and all of it. You know, he he has a legitimate enthusiasm. He's not just like trying desperately to to connect with someone and thus like pretending to be interested. I think he's proven even before this guy gets into the van that he has a, I guess a, you could say at least a morbid fascination with all the trappings of this. But he's also like kind of scolding, I guess it's where I paused it, he's scolding, I think it's his sister that, you know, oh, you would like it if you didn't know what was in it. Talking about this, you know, gross reduction of all the the parts of steer into, I think what, what the hitchhiker said was just boils it down to like a fat. <laughs> like well, it's head head cheese, right? Head cheese, yeah. Which was the original title for the film. Yep, Leatherface and Head Cheese were were working titles, I think. Head cheese is definitely a thing that I, I saw available in like gas stations on road trips going through Texas throughout my my youth. There's a lot of things served in gas stations that feel like they were developed based on a dare. Um, <laughs> <in Texas. laughs> did you did you ever have it, Rich? I know. I'm pretty sure I've never had that. 
All right, if you and I are ever in a gas station together that serves head cheese, you have to promise me that we'll both do it. You should say that. Like, I'd put our odds, like, pretty good. I know. I know. Place of head cheese at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can count me right the fuck out on that one. <laughs> Franklin says it's good, Brent. Come on. <laughs> yeah. John, uh, you'd, you'd like it if you didn't know what was in it. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I'll take Franklin's word for it. <laughs> and and one of them said, I think it, one of the ladies said, hey, I, I like meat. Like, just stop this. You know, like the idea that uh, don't ruin it for me with this, with this conversation. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I did read like a passage today that supposedly Guillermo del Toro claims that he's he's a vegetarian for life after watching this film. That checks out. I mean, it, it's definitely something that is akin to one of those documentaries that the vegans, you know, try to get you to watch so you'll stop eating animals and stuff. No doubt. The mood changes and, uh, you know, Hitchhiker starts to realize the only one of these guys that's, uh, you know, into his his shtick is Franklin. But then when Franklin pulls out the knife, like, he's delighted to see him fiddling with it. Like, the Hitchhiker's like, oh, he likes knife games! This kindred spirit who likes head cheese. And everyone else is, like, really alarmed. But I think that when the hitchhiker cuts his hand here, he thinks that this is the game that you do with the knife. Like, you trade it back and forth and cut yourself. That's kind of my my thought. He's really enjoying it. He definitely seems... <laughs> yeah, he definitely seems, like, a little surprised at how appalled they are. Mm-hmm. Although, by the time he gets out of the vein, you get the feeling that he's really enjoying getting a rise out of them. I think there's a, a slow evolution of this guy's emotional response to these people and i think he gives them a lot of rope before he really writes them off and turns you know turns the page on them and turns hostile i mean truly hostile i don't think he's just making fun of them here it's a slow realization on his part that they are horrified by him yes this is not chop top this is a very different character than chop top chop top would be actively fucking with them i don't think this guy is I just love the looks of horror from everyone watching him. I feel like Sally was kind of posing for the picture. <laughs> yeah, and it sort of like turns out like the implication is he only took a picture of Franklin, which is semi-significant. Is this the picture that, that Sally has in 2022, John? No, because he burns it, right? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Is 2022 a continuation of this timeline? Yes. Yeah, it's very much like that Halloween movie. It just skips all the other movies. Watch him carefully here as he he just vacillates emotionally, like back and forth, the hitchhiker, I mean. From glee and delight. He's so excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, just, he just has a piece of foil folded up <laughs> Yeah. in his bag, in his pocket. Yep. Well, he'll use it momentarily. He's trying to sell them the photo. Well, he has a couple of things that he wants that we'll I'll, I'll mention in a minute. But yeah, he busts out the foil again here. And now this is where the worm has really turned in him. And he's, he's written them off. So yeah, let's pause it here because I, I want to discuss this character a bit more. 
So the mood initially turned against both Franklin and the hitchhiker, and I, I picked up, I thought, I don't know if you guys felt this way, that he seemed at least briefly embarrassed. Maybe it's only like a vestigial instinct from his childhood when he was in more social situations or something, but I think he feels self-conscious at a couple different points in the sequence. When he sees Franklin uh, playing around with the knife, I, I really read that he sees a kindred spirit here who likes to play with knives too. And I think there's something very childish about the hitchhiker. He's giggling, he's giving them these looks of glee right before he cuts into himself. On one level, yeah, this is really super disturbing because this is the kind of person you're dealing with here. It speaks volumes, chillingly, about our antagonists in this movie. Not only are they entirely comfortable treating human bodies like steer, they even enjoy drawing their own blood. Do you think they might enjoy drawing your blood more? I think so. But he gives Franklin his knife back. It's clear he doesn't intend to kill these people here. I think this is as close to a normal situation, a social situation, as he can do. He gets awkward when he realizes that the way they're looking at him now is negative and they're really not, not getting it. He, he's not sophisticated. He wasn't contemptuously fucking with them. He wanted this to go well. I think it's fun also, or at least sort of revealing character-wise, that Kirk is the one dealing with him. He's not entirely worthless, the Kirk character. He's kind of playing along with the hitchhiker in a non-threatening, non-judgmental way, but he's actively trying to influence the situation with the knives being out. He's talking the hitchhiker down. He's like, just kind of man-to-man, let's put the knives away, you know, no big deal. But he's playing the, the cool, you know, dude card here. And he has at least enough sort of courage to maintain, to play that role. And the hitchhiker, obviously like a child, just enjoys looking through the viewfinder of his camera before getting serious about taking a picture. It's not a bit he's doing. That would be child chop top. That would be chop top. But no, this guy is just, he's childish in a way that Bubba, aka Leatherface, is, is, is childish in his own way. And I also think that when Hitch takes their photo, or Franklin's photo, he wants to trade it for a ride to his house, which I think, well, you know, we know, we'll soon find out, it's quite nearby. It's a perfectly reasonable social transaction to make on the road. Kirk, you know, picking up the vibe, and, you know, I'm sure he doesn't want to do this either, uh, of everyone else, he's like, uh, we're pretty much we're in pretty much of a hurry. It's maybe not ideal phrasing, but the vibe, the subtext comes through. It's like, sorry, bro, that would put us out a little. Maybe you're asking for a little too much here. That's that's the the translation there. The hitchhiker doesn't take the the cue. He doubles down, and now he's inviting them for dinner because he really wants, I think, to connect with Franklin. And Franklin said he liked head cheese, and Hitch, you know, he he uh, reiterates that. I think he may still hold out hope that Franklin is a cool guy, you know, potentially a friend in this harsh world. I I read it as an honest gesture of friendship, the dinner offer. But then, of course, you know, I understand to everyone else, like there's 10,000 clues saying, screaming at you that this guy is bad news. Maybe not the worst news, but he lives in the same house as the worst news. 
Kirk, the ambassador character, is like, I think we better push on, man. Don't you, Jerry? You know, and he tries to get, like, the driver's support, and all he gets is a silent nod. That's the moment where the hitchhiker starts looking at them with hard new eyes. Like, his attempt at connection has been rebuffed. And so he's like, okay, then. And I see him looking at that photo he took of them differently now. He then, like, segues, like, this is such a complex scene in a way. Like, he segues to, all right, maybe they can pay me for the car, the, the picture. And it's like a parody of a business transaction. He, he wants $2 for it, you know, and he starts saying it's a good picture, even though Franklin's honest review was it, it didn't turn out so good. And so the hitchhiker kind of becomes a street hustler, and he's trying to enforce a sale that was not even imagined by the others, let alone pre-negotiated the way he's playing it. And it's disturbing uh, in, a, in a way, but it's still within, I think, vague societal boundaries here. I think it's also worth pointing out that he's carrying this animal skin bag. That's where all these things are, are coming out of. Yeah. That certainly connects itself to these people who take dead things and make stuff from it. I actually find that bag a little unsettling. It is. It is kind of gross and weird. And there's animal skins throughout their house and obviously all the bones and stuff. And yeah, they're just like so comfortable with turning living things into objects. It's it's unsettling. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. I will think just like in a, in a very broad way to sort of comment on your breakdown of the, the hitchhiker, who, by the way, I've, I've, I've read in other places that the character's name is Nubbins, but I can't find any support for that within the movie. Um, Isn't Nubbins the, the, the corpse in the second movie? That's what I think is the case. Maybe, maybe I read something that got it confused, but... But, but I do think that there's something to, especially with his character and Leatherface in particular, the, the cook, not so much, where the movie is definitely expressing a certain level of empathy for them, despite them clearly being the you know antagonists of the, of the film. Like there are moments where I think it invites you to understand that like they're, they're unfulfilled or unhappy or, or troubled he's a lonely guy seeking connection and friendship is, is, is sort of, you know, what I said that I think ties into what you just said. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm just saying like, I I feel like that's a, that is a theme of like the, of the film overall. Um, and that they're not completely damned. Mm -hmm. We can relate. Anyone can, can relate to that in a sense. What the hitchhiker needs is a Clydesdale guys. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'm going to stop. That's it. That's my last bestiality joke. <laughs> Probably. Interesting choice for bestiality is all I'll say. Uh, Clydesdale is a, that's a tall order, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, shall we hit play? Do it. No, let's not do it. We're going to end this episode right here. Get it out to you. Plenty more Texas Chainsaw Massacre talk ahead. I promise you that. Until next time, adios.